Good morning, Boise Euclid. It's so good to be with you, even if it is this way virtually. But I am, I'm honored. I'm grateful. Thank you for the opportunity to share. I pray that, that these moments, um, whether morning, afternoon, or evening, that these moments, God would use me as a conduit of grace and of love, and that you would hear from him, um, that you would hear from the Lord during, during this time. I believe, honestly, in faith that, that God's grace has drawn us here, even in, this, <laughs> in these ways. Um, but right here, right now, in, 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 these, in these places that we occupy, in these spaces that, that, um, that God's grace has drawn us. And I trust, I trust that God is with us, is with you, with me, is, is working in seen and unseen redemptive ways. Yet this posture, um, honestly, <laughs> yet this posture of believing and trusting is often difficult. I mean, it's difficult for me, <laughs> for sure. It's difficult often because redemption often seems elusive or even non-existent at times. Maybe now, more than ever, we recognize, we recognize that we live in a world where there's pain and there's, there's darkness and there's, there's, there's sorrow and there's death. I work with colleges all throughout the country, and our students and our staff and our faculty have, have faced loss this year. Loss of, of friendships because students not returning or um, not being able to return, loss of graduations and loss of classes and the way things were and the way things um, had always been, and, and the loss of even of financial security, and the growing crises on, on campuses of homelessness and hunger and racial trauma and anxiety have all escalated during these seasons this season. In our world, we can see that there's growing violence and, and there's diseases and, 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 and crashing economies. And, and we also live in our own lives, in our own personal lives, with struggles of our own, of work and school and relationships, full calendars and new COVID adjustments and schedules and, and, and disruptions that just seem to happen. And of course, we live with the struggle, right, that the world wants to tell us that the, the, the seeming reality that we've got to succeed or be left behind. Now, we also face struggles as well that are outside of our control, right? The employment or unemployment, the repairs that need to be done on houses or cars and, and kids growing up. Even when I tell the kids to stop growing, they keep growing. These things that are out of our control and some of the things that are not good, like bullying and abuse that happen to us from others, or illnesses and disorders and diseases. And then on a larger scale, even systemic injustices and natural disasters that happen. So as Christians, I, I, I want to ask, and I, I want to ask myself this, as Christians, can we look at such a world and still love it? If we can, do we live with such love? We also, however, and I want to be emphatic here, we live in a world where there is healing and, and there is joy and there is light and there is life, new life that exists too. There are those recovering from, from illnesses and, and diseases and there's those receiving new jobs. And my own extended family, while we suffered death, we've also, we've also celebrated new births. My cousin's having kids, right? These, this new life that takes place. We live in a world where life and death and wounds and wonders and joy and sorrow seem to exist and, and simultaneously kissing each other at every moment. Now, as Christians, I believe that we should neither avoid nor ignore this reality. I believe that we can live differently in this tension than the world tells us. 
one that is neither apathetic nor hysterical, one that is neither controlled by fear nor negates fear, one that not only empathizes but is moved compassionately, one that not only recognizes that God is with us but is also revealed in us through the ways that we respond in times of joy or tragedy. So how then, how then do we live fully in such tension? One might say that we are what we love, and therefore what we love is what the world sees. So what do we love most? <laughs> Who do we love most? The world insists that we are to love certain things, and, and they should be the most important to us. The world tells us that we should love nation, and accomplishments, and degrees, and status, and fame, and money, and sexuality. Or they also tell us that we should just love me first, because that's the best. <laughs> Yet, what does Jesus say? Again, I think we need to ask, can we look at this world and still love it? If so, do we live lovingly? I think Jesus offers not just a middle way here in this passage in Matthew chapter 22, which I'll read in just a moment. I believe that Jesus offers us a completely alternative lifestyle. So yes, we'll be in Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 46, and I'll be reading from it from the Common English Bible right now. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had left the Sadducees speechless, they met, it, they met together. One of them, a legal expert, tested him. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? He replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You must love your neighbor as you love yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commandments. All the law and the prophets hinge on these two commands. Now, as the Pharisees were gathering, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Jesus asked. David's son, they replied. He said, Then how is it that David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, called him Lord, when he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right side until I turn your enemies into your footstool. If David calls him Lord, how can he be David's son? Nobody was able to answer him. And from that day forward, nobody dared ask him anything. Now, many of us, I believe, I assume, are familiar with at least a portion of that passage known as the greatest commandment. It's been said all over the globe in different ways, on different billboards and in different circumstances. And yet, maybe most of us are not familiar with the larger stories surrounding the words of Jesus. We find actually Jesus in some deep parable sharing and Q&A time with the religious leaders while his disciples and, and followers and others are intentionally eavesdropping in on the conversations. In these temple conversations, because that's where they are, were introduced to some religious leaders of his day that were quite honestly annoyed with his alternate ideas and disruptive opposition to the systems and the powers that were in place and that they worked really hard at putting in place. They were, they were annoyed and, and troubled by his, 
by his talk of this new kingdom of heaven as well. In fact, earlier in this chapter, we hear that the Pharisees had met together to find a way to trap Jesus in his words, to hopefully put an end to his conversations and teachings and this crazy nonsense that they believed and also possibly even put an end to his life. So here we have a few that I've just mentioned. We have a couple characters. We have the Pharisees. They were basically the religious lawyers. To them, it was ethics over theology because the law was everything. Simply, in these words, it was love of law over the giver of the law. And then we have the Sadducees who had occurred in just previous in this chapter. The Sadducees, were they, they were no, known primarily as the priestly aristocracy. It was um, basically Moses and the temple over theology because the temple was everything. Simply, let's put it this way. It was love of the temple over the God of the temple. So we have the Pharisees, the love of law over the giver of the law. And we have the Sadducees, the love of the temple over the God of the temple. Now, these two groups in this particular temple gathering, in this space where Jesus is teaching, um, keep trying to one-up each other, right? Their competition is, is definitely vivid. And they're testing Jesus in, uh, with what they believe to be a better question than the other person. Either way, this passage is surrounded by not only uncomfortable confrontations, but situated in conversations about judgment, and about policy and politics, about resurrection, and ultimately lordship and love questions. We're actually witnessing in this scene the last time that Jesus will meet with the religious leaders before he is arrested in the garden, at least in the gospel of Matthew. And there's an invitation, it seems, I believe, into more than a, a mere conversation about or even just with Jesus, there's an invitation into a revelation of who Jesus is. So again, Jesus is tested, right, about the law here. The law, or the Torah, or even the Mosaic law, was given by God, and therefore, according to most in, in that day, the ultimate revelation of God, until the expected Messiah, or Christ, would, would, would come. The Pharisees, they, they do not believe Jesus to be the Christ at all. So they're trying to trap Jesus and asking about the greatest commandment. And there's over 600 of these commandments. So they're trying to, to trap Jesus in identifying what the greatest commandment is. Well, Jesus answers. He, most often, actually, in the gospel accounts, Jesus wouldn't really answer their questions directly and definitively. He'd often respond with a parable or a question. We actually get a direct answer here and a, and a return question as well in this exchange between them. Jesus does speak directly and definitively saying that in fact, all the law and the prophets, meaning all the Hebrew scriptures and the Torah, written and oral, hinge on these two commands. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your mind, and you must love your neighbor as you love yourself. Hinge. I love this word. 
So my wife is a pretty incredible artist. Yeah, I like married way up, guys, like so far up. She, she's been dabbling in woodworking recently, I guess challenging herself because she primarily works with fabric, but that's a whole other story. You gotta check out her Instagram. Anyways, so uh, I guess she's challenging herself, right? Well, she just finished making uh, a couple closet doors for ourselves and then another pair of closet doors for some friends. And so I was helping her install them. The doors are beautiful. Uh, by themselves, they're beautiful, laying on the floor, leaning on a wall, or even a close-up photo, right? Yet, they're basically just really beautiful pieces of wood art, unless they are hinged to the door frame. These doors, to actually be functional, uh, useful, and even more, work beautifully for their intended purposes, are not a door without the hinges. These doors depend on the hinges. Have you ever looked at something the wrong way? Have you ever looked at someone the wrong way? Have you ever interpreted something, even a gesture incorrectly? Have you ever read something and just missed the central meaning? I think that's what happened with the Pharisees for years and years, actually. Or maybe, maybe, Asking another deeper question, I think, like these Pharisees and Sadducees, have we, have we ever been so tethered to our way of living, like certain laws, meaning the do's and don'ts, have we ever been tethered to that so much that we've missed God in it? Or have we been tethered like the Sadducees to the ways of worshiping the temple? This temple, of course, is where you worship, not that temple or church. <laughs> Have we ever been tethered to that so much that we've missed God in it all? Simply, I think we need to ask ourselves, do we ever just miss the point? Why do we keep trying to make a door be a door without its hinges? Jesus does not say that the law is meaningless at all. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say it's worthless or useless. There's, there's no condemnation of the law or Judaism by Jesus. In fact, in Matthew chapter 5, we hear Jesus, the Christ, say, don't even begin to think that I have come to do away with the law. No, I have not come to do away with the law and the prophets. I haven't come to do away with them, but to fulfill them. In other words, Jesus has come to give them their fullest meaning and purpose. Jesus seems to be uncovering something that had actually been there all along but just needed to be looked at differently. It seems as though Jesus is rehinging stuff for them and revealing something to them. So just maybe, not just the law, but Jesus, just maybe Jesus had come to reveal and resurrect all of life, including ours, to their fullest meaning and fullest purpose and fullest flourishing way of being. COVID has been apocalyptic, I believe, in the definitive sense. The, the, the word apocalypse means to uncover or unveil, to reveal. So that's why I think it's been that way. It's, it's done just that, if we look all around us. It's, it's uncovered what we truly love and what we truly fear. God is a God that loves to reveal God's self, too. 
I believe God's been doing this since the beginning. God's been revealing to creation since the beginning God's self. In Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God, we see that God reveals God's self as the beginning. In the beginning God created. We see the, just that next word that God reveals God's self as creator, as imaginative, as, as, as someone who loves to create. Throughout the scriptures, we then see that God reveals God's self as a pillar of fire, as a cloud of smoke. Uh, through the prophets, God reveals in the words that are spoken, the prophets say, draw near and hear the word of the Lord. God reveals God's self in so many ways throughout scripture. Even in one instance, God reveals God's self as a donkey, which he may be doing right now. Either way, in the process of God revealing God's self, God's been revealing God's character of being as well. That God is a God of just justice and just and God is loving and trusting in fact loving and trusting us so much that God not only called us to take care of the world and one another but trusting us to do it trusting human agency to take care of all of creation and God not only trusted us that much God trusted us even more trusted us to the ultimate level that God became us ultimately God revealed God's self in flesh and the writer of hebrews the writer of hebrews reminds us that that jesus this ultimate flesh revealing of god jesus the christ is the exact representation of god and jesus even says if you've seen me you've seen the father who loves all and paul later reminds us uh, that jesus humbled himself not considering equality with god something to be held on to or exploited but humbled himself and became us and not only became us but ultimately to death right on the cross philosopher and theologian athanasius once said this he said god became what we are that he might make us what he is so I need to ask us again, I need to ask myself, so what is Jesus asking us to become in this text? Or better yet, what is Jesus asking us to reveal in our lives? Jesus quotes two central and literally actually central in the Torah and the scroll commandments. Two central commandments. Deuteronomy 6, 5, the Shema. The, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your whole, all your mind, and all your strength, and all your soul. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then in Leviticus chapter 19, the, the love of all humanity, the second commandment to, to love your neighbor as yourself. I think love needs to be the center of everything, the center of our living. A love that's vertical and horizontal so that we can be the free people God has created us to be. That is one's created in the imago dei, in the image of God. As God tells us in the beginning in Genesis, let us make humanity in our image, in the image of God. Ultimately, I believe love set in God enables us to be these image bearers to our fullest purposes. Image bearers not marked by the pursuit of wealth or status, but by and through acting justly and walking humbly. Image bearers not marked by mere nation or party, but by being caretakers of all of creation and taking care of the, of the dignity of all humanity. In other words, Jesus seems to be reminding us that at the center of all that God has revealed 
has been love because God is love. When we are centered, when we, excuse me, when we, when we are off-centered, when we miss this center, everything else is unhinged. Yahweh's intended purpose when God gave the Ten Commandments, you know, these great Ten Commandments, after bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt, was, was simply to be a love letter, I believe. <laughs> it's been said that the first four laws are about relating to God, this vertical relationship of love. And the remaining six are actually about relating to neighbor, this horizontal way of living. Loving God, loving others, a righteous way of living, right relationship with God and right relationship with humanity and creation. For the Israelite, these were radical relational commandments, not restrictive transactional rules. For example, imagine if you had just, just imagine this with me, the story that, that is true and real. Imagine if you had just come out of slavery and deep bondage where you didn't just work for living or, or a living, but were worked to the brink of death and sometimes to death seven days a week at all hours of the day and all hours of the night by a supposed divinity God known as Pharaoh. And then the one true God, Yahweh brings you up out of this bondage and constant laborsome work and says, I love you, my child. <laughs> I love you, children. I want you to keep a Sabbath. Work should never be punishment or a cause for burnout or even become addictive. So I don't want you to work, work, work. Hear me. Hear my heart. Receive this love letter, these commandments to take a Sabbath, practice this rhythm of justice, and keep this, keep this command, this, this holy living for your flourishing and for the flourishing of all of creation. See, the law was an invitation, not an end-all. The Pharisees, they weren't looking at it correctly, I believe. <laughs> See, love received and love lived out has always been the purpose. And not just any love or any idea or a philosophy of love or some sort of thought about love, but love as a person, the true Christ, the true son of David whom we hear about in the remaining verses. For Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the Lord in those texts. This is what a flourishing life of love hinges on. Jesus, the Christ, the King. We must be dependent upon this love. Christ must be our center so that we can be image bearers and reveal, uncover to the world uh, who we love, uncover to the world what we love, and uncover to the world the one who is love. When we receive and embrace and surrender to such love, such wondrous love, we'll be able to love in all spaces, all spaces of our lives. As we hear Jesus invite us into loving in all spaces, in John chapter 9, to, to love in the spaces of families, in John chapter 15, to love in the spaces of, of fellow Christians and disciples and the church, uh, to love in the spaces of where, where we encounter strangers in Luke chapter 10, and to love even our enemies, Matthew chapter 5. 
So no matter the crisis, no matter the pandemic or oppression we face, the world will know who we love. The world will know that we love. The world will know who is love. And this just might be a love-fulfilled, purposeful life, so to speak. Jesus quotes the psalm in that passage, revealing who he is as the Christ. He reveals a love fulfilled and, and establishes his, his true lordship as the Messiah, the son of David, the true king, a king who loves to the extremes, just not how they expect. Remember, this was the last time that they were to meet, and the next time they are to meet is in the garden at the arrest. The two greatest commandments are fulfilled the next time, this next time they meet, where he sees these religious leaders once again. The two greatest commandments are fulfilled, and they miss it. Jesus is inviting us into a love story filled that is not about eradicating evil, but about redeeming it. Jesus is inviting us into this sort of love story, not about eradicating evil, but redeeming it. Redemption. Jesus did not seek to eliminate the negative that he kept encountering with the Pharisees or the Sadducees or anyone, or even the law. He did not look to eliminate the law, but instead redeem it, to love through it, to resurrect it, to fulfill it. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are the greatest fulfillment of love and love for all. Love of God and love of all of creation because no one has greater love than to give up one's life for one's friends. And all of humanity are invited to be friends of Jesus. Therefore, God loves all of creation. And we then can be love-filled image bearers of the true king. This, this is being hinged. This is living into our intended purposes. There was a great professor at Seattle Pacific University and, and later at Asbury Seminary. And um, I, he shared this story, uh, well, he shared this story several times about one of his students um, that it got to encounter Mother Teresa. And I'd like to share his, his story with you right now and, um, and how he tells it. He said, Mother Teresa... Mother Teresa saw Christ who is love in everyone. Mother Teresa saw Jesus in everyone. An image bearer, Mother Teresa, saw the image of God in everyone she encountered. Even in the difficult people. And Mother Teresa would say this about the, the difficult ones and comment that Christ had appeared in difficult garb. Patiently, she served everyone. The mean, the despicable, the critics, the dying of AIDS, the dying of other diseases, victims of abuse, disease-inflicted, and deserted infants. She loved them all from womb to tomb. She loved and cared for, and for all and loved all of humanity. At one point, Mother Teresa, already aged, wanted to retire from her leadership responsibilities, but the sisters of her order voted her back into leadership, and she responded without a whimper. She kept embodying love. Well, one day, one of my students, Sandy, was working his way through seminary with a job at the local airport. And Sandy heard that Mother Teresa would be flying into Lexington, Kentucky. Sandy invited his, his work partner, Joe, to watch for her when she landed. Joe, now, he's not a Christian, 
and he really didn't much care to see Mother Teresa at all. When she walked off the plane, Sandy and Joe both got a clear view of her and got to meet her up close and saw her eyes. Sandy, deeply moved, commented about Mother Teresa's gentle, piercing look. Joe became very sober and he said, if I get much more of Mother Teresa, I may become a Christian. <laughs> Christ had not only captured Mother Teresa's heart, but her entire being. Mother Teresa loved the Lord with all of her heart, all of her soul, all of her strength, all of her being. She had surrendered heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Jesus showed through her. Love was manifest even in her eyes and her gaze. Jesus is the king. We are children of the king. And, and this king loves us with an everlasting, never-ending, always-expanding love. A love that, that we're invited and enabled to live out vertically and horizontally. Where Jesus is Lord of all of ours. All of our hearts, all of our minds, all of our being. And the world will know this. They will know that we are disciples by how well we love. How this love is uncovered and revealed to the world. They will know who and what we love most. They will know who is love. Or as Oswald Chambers says, love is the beginning, love is the middle, and love is the end. Let's live hinged, centered and set in Christ. And let's live to our intended fullest meaning and purpose. God enables us to do this so that we can be image-bearing and image-bearers who love God and love others, even with our eyes and a gaze. May the peace of the Lord and of Christ, who is the King, be with you.